if you're familiar with the history of the Battle of Carchemish, you're probably wondering what's up with this title, but stay tuned and all will be revealed. All right, so these Bible studies are archived on Sermon Audio. Just go to sermonaudio.com forward slash Matt Crane. You can find a whole lot more Bible studies on there. Uh, I air these YouTube live Bible studies on uh, Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock a.m. Mountain Time if you want to tune in live. Uh, I air my Bible studies also on Final Fight Bible Radio on Fridays at 9 o'clock a.m. and 9 o'clock p.m. Mountain Time. And there's also a live broadcast that I do on Final Fight Bible Radio on Fridays at 10 o'clock Mountain Time if you want to tune into that. If you enjoy this content, subscribe to the YouTube channel here and share this with your friends and family. And if you're interested in additional in-depth studies, I have four books available through Final Fight Bible Radio that, that go through some of the more detailed information that I'm having to skip in this series of lessons. Uh, if you want some of the details on some of that stuff, it's in some of the books that I've written. And if you'd like to support the ministry of Final Fight Bible Radio, these Bible studies, and or myself, uh, you can do so through the various donation links on these sites. Thank you to those of you who do uh, contribute and support. I appreciate it. All right, so we're in the last section of this series of Daniel chapter 11. There's only a few lessons left to go. I'm almost done with all my notes, and uh, we'll be moving on to something else. But last week I explained how it's possible that the Antichrist can be the king of the south and yet still legitimately hold the title of the Assyrian, which is a title that pertains to the north. And I explained some of that last week. And so the general teaching on this section of verses of Daniel 11, 40 through 45, is that the Antichrist is going to be the future king of the north, which is the Assyrian Empire. Essentially, the Assyrian Empire will have to be revived, and uh, some speculate that literal Babylon will be restored, and that will be his capital in the future. All right, and so uh, sometime, and then, and then the theory goes on to say that sometime just prior to the second advent, the Antichrist is going to be opposed by some random king of Egypt. Nobody knows who he is or why, but right before the second advent, the Antichrist is going to be opposed by some random king who's going to rebel against him, and then the Antichrist and him are going to fight, and then there's going to be the final battle of Armageddon up in Israel. That's the general Bible-believing interpretation of the passage. But I went over aspects of that theory that seem to be problematic, and now I'm going to present an alternative Bible-believing theory that might fit better, okay? Just because I'm, a, I'm not on board with the existing Bible-believing theory doesn't mean I'm not a Bible-believer. I'm just thinking that that interpretation is incorrect, so let's see if there's another Bible-believing interpretation that actually fits better with the scriptures. Because you have to remember, as we approach this next section of verses, there's a couple things you have to keep in mind. Number one, the context of the timing of these verses that we're dealing with has to do with the three-and-a-half-year Great Tribulation, the, the end of the Tribulation period. The second thing is, in Daniel 11, you have to remember that throughout the chapter, the antecedent of the pronouns, he, him, all that stuff, it can, it can change. Uh, very quickly without warning. So uh, I'm going to apply a little bit of that into my interpretation of verse 40 through 45, but keep in mind that that's happened in other places throughout this chapter. So it's not a big deal. But number three, the most important thing is that our interpretation, whatever we go with, needs to have other scriptures to corroborate our interpretation. If you don't have any other scripture to corroborate your, your interpretation, then there is a very high likelihood that your interpretation is a private interpretation. As the Bible says 
in 1 Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. That is to say, the Bible, the Bible teaches that as Christians, we can't just come to a portion of scripture and you know, pull whatever we want out of our hat and make up whatever we want and say, well, that's the interpretation. No. The way the scripture works is the scripture interprets scripture, okay? So you can't have a theory that has no scripture to back it up. So I tend to disagree with the Egyptian rebellion theory, as I call it, which requires that the Antichrist be the king of the north and is challenged by some random king of Egypt in the closing days of the Great Tribulation. Again, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that I could be wrong about that, and maybe that is the correct interpretation. And if someone can show me the biblical proof, then okay. But the Bible-believing teachers that take the Bible literally, that subscribe to that theory, have not provided any scriptural backing to support that theory, none whatsoever. If you don't believe me, please read those commentaries. So for that reason primarily, I'm interested in seeing if there is another way to look at this, and if there is an interpretation that does have scripture to back it up, all right? So I'm going to begin to present my own interpretation of this passage, and by the way, someone else out there probably has already interpreted the passage this way, is the way I'm about to teach it, but if they have, I'm, I'm not aware of it. I've done a lot of research, a lot of study, I've read a lot of commentary, and I have to believe that somebody out there has already looked at it the way I'm going to present it. It's got to be out there somewhere, I just haven't found it. So I'm not saying this to be boastful, I'm not saying this to be arrogant, I'm saying this to be transparent with you, because I don't want to give the audience the impression that the theory I'm about to present is just a standard theory among Bible believers. It's not. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm just trying to be transparent, trying to be honest with you. This is uh, a theory that you probably haven't heard before, okay? More than likely. And if you have, please tell me where you've heard this, because I've looked and can't find it. So anyway, as I've said, I'm of the opinion that the Antichrist is going to be the king of the south in the end times. He's going to effectively be Pharaoh, because Egypt will be his empire. Egypt will be the final empire of the last days, and Mystery Babylon will be located in Egypt, I presume, in New Cairo, okay? And uh, what's really interesting is this stuff about BRICS that we've heard in the last couple days with all these nations joining the BRICS. It's almost like they're trying to create a new United Nations in the world. So I find that interesting, but again, I don't base my scriptural interpretation on what the news says, okay? You got to be careful about that. Uh, we looked at verse 39 already, and in verse 39, it, you remember that it speaks about the ten kings and the destruction of Mystery Babylon. So by verse 40, we are well within the final three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. That's important to know. With verse 40, we're not over here somewhere. We're not in the church age. We are clearly in the Great Tribulation period. All right, by the way, i got to hit that button there. I always forget. Nope, wrong button. Got to hit that button. I always forget. All right, so anyway, verse 40. Let's go ahead and look at that. Uh, it says, and at the time of the end. Okay, Daniel eleven forty. at the time of the end. Now, I'll just pause there real quick. The time of the end is a phrase that primarily refers to the Great Tribulation period. Okay, but seeing as how the context is already the Great Tribulation period, um, this specifically says at the time of the end. So it says at the time of the end while we're in the time of the end. So in other words, 
what I kind of get from verse 40 is it sounds like what it's saying is at the time of the end of the time of the end. In other words, at the end of the Great Tribulation period. So like uh, verse 36 through verse 39 has been telling us about the start of the Great Tribulation. We're into the Great Tribulation. And now by the time we get to verse 40, we're right at the end of the Great Tribulation period. Which, again, uh, Bible-believing commentators would agree with that. Because even if you go with the Egyptian rebellion theory, that still puts you right, right before the second advent, all right? So I would agree that we are right over here, right at the very end, okay? At the time of the end. So verse 40, at the time of the end, uh, the end of the great tribulation period, shall the king of the south, which I teach is the Antichrist, specifically the son of perdition, and he's been referred to in the previous four verses, okay? So that's why verse 40 references the king of the south. Who's the king of the south? The one we've been talking about in verse 36 through verse 39, all right? And it says he will push at him. Okay, well, who's he pushing against? At the, at the end of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is going to push against somebody. Now, pushing in the book of Daniel has to do with a military confrontation. In Daniel chapter 8, you remember that the ram and the goat vision, the ram was pushing, uh, pushing it says, uh, eastward, or no, he was pushing westward, northward, and southward. Remember, he was pushing, and uh, the, the he-goat came against him. Well, that pushing had to do with Persia's military advancement and dominion of those areas that it was pushing against, okay? So it says that the Antichrist is going to push, all right? So that's a, ter that's a military term. He's going to confront militarily somebody at the end of the Great Tribulation period. Who's he going to push against? Well, the answer is the king of the north. He shall push at him and the king of the north, okay, so the him implies, that's why I have the arrow there, the him that he's pushing against is the king of the north, okay. It's pretty easy, but I just have to be thorough here. Okay, so the king of the south, at the time of the end, is going to push against the king of the north. The Antichrist is going to push against the king of the north. So the question is, who could this king of the north be, right? At the end of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is going to push against the king of the north, so based on what you already know of prophecy, who does the Antichrist confront militarily at the end of the Great Tribulation period? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> so here's what I'm getting at. What if the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of the north in verses 40 through 45? Now hear me out. Hear me out. I've got reason to think this. What if the north, here in verse 40, has to do with absolute north, as in heaven, okay? It's at least a possibility, biblically, okay? I'm not too far out in left field, because north in the Bible is associated with God's location, all right? So Psalms 48, verse 2, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great what? King, Okay? So the great king is Jesus. He's the king of the north, Psalms 48.2. Now, technically, Psalms 48.2 is referring to literal Jerusalem in the millennium, but Jerusalem at that time is going to be mirrored or fashioned according to the way heaven is right now. So even in heaven, uh, the Bible talks about heaven in terms of Mount Zion and God's throne sitting on the sides of the north up in heaven, okay? Isaiah 14.2. 12, you're familiar with this verse, it says, How art thou fallen 
from heaven, O Lucifer. Okay, so fallen implies going downward, implies southward. He fell from heaven, okay? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend. Okay, what direction does ascend imply? It implies up, it implies northward, right? Into heaven, okay? So heaven's in the north. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the what? East? In the sides of the west? No. He's, gonna, he's trying to exalt his, his uh, throne. He's trying to get up to the sides of the north. Okay? Heaven. I will ascend above the heights. North, north, north. Of the clouds, north. <laughs> I will be like the most what? The most high. The north. <laughs> right? So heaven... And, and this is obvious, but heaven is associated with high, something very high, and something that is north. The direction of heaven is north, okay? So throughout the Bible, God and heaven are associated with being above, being, being high, being to the north. So when Jesus returns at the second advent with his army, the impression that you're given is that he comes down from the north. He's descending from heaven, okay? He's coming from north to south. So because Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven and his throne is on the sides of the north, it is certainly not a stretch to give Jesus the title, the king of the north, right? That's not that, that big of a deal. So furthermore, if this is correct, if, okay, if, if this is correct, and the king of the north has to do, the king of the north in verse 40 has to do with the king of the spiritual north, the king of absolute north, heaven, the king of heaven, which would be Jesus. Then it follows that the king of the south is also has to do with the king of the spiritual south, the king of absolute south, or the king of the southern kingdom of hell. Okay, So if I'm switching the king of the north in verse 40 to heaven, then the king of the south, it also seems to indicate that he's going to be the king of hell. Now, does that fit? Well, as I pointed out in a few lessons back, the son of perdition is known as Abaddon in Revelation chapter 9. And he is called a king that ascends from the spiritual south, from the bottomless pit. Absolute south in the universe is where Abaddon comes from. And he is a king. He's called the king over those creatures of hell in Revelation chapter 9. He is the king on the pale horse that who is the captain of hell in Revelation 6. And he is called the king of terrors in, in Job chapter 18. And because Satan is the king of the kingdom of hell, just as Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven, Satan is the king of the kingdom of hell, it's certainly not a stretch to say that this title, king of the south, could be a double, en <coughs> a double entendre, so to speak. A double entendre is essentially a word or phrase that has two interpretations. So the son of perdition, who is essentially Satan manifest in the flesh for all practical purposes, he's the king of the south, in, in the physical south, the king of Egypt, okay? But he's also king of the spiritual south, too, in, this, in the sense that he's the king of the bottomless pit, all right? So essentially, the concept that I want to pursue and I want to investigate is the idea that perhaps Daniel 11, verses 40 through 45 describes the end-time war between the Antichrist and Jesus Christ. All right, so as I've taught, I think Egypt is going to be the end-time empire, and the Antichrist will be the ruler of Egypt, effectively making him the pharaoh, okay, or the king of the south. All right, so what do we got here? 
the king of the south, king of the south, and the king of the south is Pharaoh, and the king of the south is going to be the Antichrist, as I have been explaining in these lessons, okay? So now let's uh, go a little bit farther here. Throughout Daniel chapter 11, the king of the north, okay, let's think about this. The king of the north has been the ruler of the territory, extending primarily from Persia to Syria, and the capital of this empire was always Babylon, okay? Babylon is called the fortress of the king of the north throughout Daniel chapter 11, if you recall. So, naturally, on the surface, you might think it's strange to give this title, the King of the North, to Jesus, when historically this term has always been applied to the King of Babylon, okay? Now, any connection between Jesus and Babylon admittedly sounds ridiculous, okay? I get that. Nevertheless, you should know that the Bible does make this connection somewhere else in the Bible, this connection between Jesus and the king of Babylon. That's interesting. Now, if you're not familiar with the Battle of Carchemish, you should probably get acquainted with it. You should read the Wikipedia article on it and understand this Battle of Carchemish that happened back in 605 BC. Extremely significant battle, not only in history, but also in the Bible. It was a major historical battle that shifted the balance of international power uh, back in the days of the kings of Israel, okay, the international power was Assyria, and the Battle of Carchemish was the battle that shifted the power from Assyria to, to the Babylonian Empire, okay? So what had happened was Assyria, here, let me give you a map here. Assyria had been the dominant, ruthless empire, but in its final days, Babylon rose to power, and in 612 BC, Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh and the Assyrians were, forced, were defeated, and they were forced to relocate to their new capital of Haran, which is uh, north of the Euphrates River. Now, if you can see in that map, you have Haran, basically is the northernmost city there, and Nineveh is to the, uh, this map has messed me up, Nineveh is to the west of it. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. The Babylonians defeated Nineveh in 612 forced the Assyrian army to retreat and create a new capital in Haran. And then in 609 BC, the Babylonians uh, marched forward and captured Haran. Okay, So now the Assyrian army is, has its back up against the wall. They're up against the Euphrates River with nowhere to go. They're caught between the Euphrates River and the uh, Babylonian army. Okay, So it was at this time, I guess I should give you this map still, it was at this time that Pharaoh Necho, down in Egypt, you see the little red arrow going up to the north, it was at this time that Pharaoh Necho marched northward with his army to assist the Assyrians, to join with the Assyrians against Nebuchadnezzar. And if you'll recall from 2 Kings 23, on the way, you see the Israeli kingdom there with Josiah as the king, while Necho, Pharaoh Necho was marching northward, Josiah, the king of Judah, decided to attack Pharaoh. Pharaoh warned him to back off, but Josiah attacked anyway, and Josiah ended up being killed in that battle, and the battle took place in the valley of Jezreel at Megiddo. Josiah attacked Pharaoh at Megiddo. Now, what's interesting is if, is had Josiah, 
who was a very righteous king of Judah. Had Josiah won that battle against Pharaoh and defeated Pharaoh in the valley of Jezreel at Megiddo, that would have been the most clear-cut type of the Battle of Armageddon anywhere in your Bible. You would have had a righteous king, a righteous Judean Jewish king, killing Pharaoh at Megiddo in an epic battle. That You don't get a much more clear-cut type of the, uh, the uh, second advent than that. But the thing is, God had already had an Armageddon-type battle planned out. So Josiah, his interference was actually obstructing this type that God had already had, had in mind. So what ends up happening is Josiah ends up dying against Pharaoh. Pharaoh kills Josiah, and Pharaoh marches northward and joins the king of Assyria against Nebuchadnezzar in battle, at Carchemish, okay, right on the banks of the Euphrates River. You can see it right up there at the top. So, effectively, you can read all about that in 2 Kings 23, but effectively what you had at the Battle of Carchemish is you had the king of the south, who was Pharaoh, uh, joining battle against the king of the north, who was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar who is the same Nebuchadnezzar that overthrew Jerusalem and brought the Jews captive to Babylon. Babylon. He does that a little bit later on. Okay, so ultimately what happens at the Battle of Carchemish is this. The Assyrians and the Egyptians end up getting defeated. Their armies are scattered. Pharaoh has to retreat back to Egypt, and the Assyrian Empire is no more. After that point, the Assyrian Empire, their army was wiped out. The Assyrian Empire is over at that point, and now Babylon is the new ruling world empire. But what's remarkable about the Battle of Carchemish is that Ezekiel prophesies about this battle, but Ezekiel gets the prophecy wrong, or at least so it seems on the surface. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 32, and this is one of those funny places in the Bible where God deliberately does has the prophecy laid out, and it makes all the Bible critics and skeptics say, ah, you see, the Bible isn't right. It's inaccurate. Ezekiel prophesied of this battle, and he got it wrong. <laughs> and the Lord's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's very funny. <laughs> you know, but he's doing it on purpose, right? So there's a reason why, why this prophecy turned out wrong. Let me show you. Ezekiel 32 is all about this battle between Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Ezekiel 32, verse 2. Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say unto him, uh, thou, art a, thou art like a young lion of the nations, and thou art as a whale in the seas. Okay, in other places, he's, in Isaiah 27, verse 1, he's called a Leviathan. And thou camest forth with thy rivers, and troublest the waters with thy feet, and foulest their rivers. Thus saith the Lord God, I will therefore spread out my net over thee with a company of many people, and they shall bring thee up in my net. Then will I leave thee upon the land. I will cast thee forth upon the open field, and will cause all the fowls of the heaven to remain upon thee, and I will fill the beasts of the whole earth with thee. 
So God is threatening Pharaoh and saying, listen, I'm going to kill you and your army. And the birds and, and, the, birds and the beasts are going to eat your dead corpses. Verse 5, and I will lay thy flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with thy heights. Okay? So in Ezekiel's prophecy, Pharaoh dies in this epic battle with the king of Babylon. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened historically, and even 2 Kings 23 records that Pharaoh returns from the battle of Carchemish, and on his way back, you remember that he installs Jehoiakim as his puppet king of Israel. Okay, so he didn't die at the battle of Carchemish. History records that, and the Bible records that, but here Ezekiel has Pharaoh dying. That's weird. Look at Ezekiel 32, verse 11. Let's keep reading. For thus saith the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon thee. Verse 18. Son of man, wail for the multitude of Egypt and cast them down, even her and the daughters of the famous nations, unto the nether parts of the earth, with them that go down into the pit. Whom dost thou pass in beauty, speaking of Egypt and Pharaoh? Go down and be thou laid with the uncircumcised. They shall fall. Oh, I'm on verse 18, by the way. I went from 11 to verse 18. I apologize for that. I'm kind of skipping around because there's a big chapter and I don't want to spend too much time here because there's a lot of verses we've got to cover. So, uh, verse 20, they shall fall in the midst of them that are slain by the sword. She is delivered to the sword. Draw her and all her multitudes. Okay, so then verse 21 through verse 30 describes all the different nations that were joined up with Pharaoh in this battle. But the problem is some of those nations weren't joined up with Pharaoh historically at this battle. Okay, so then look at verse 31. Pharaoh shall see them. Okay, the context is he's seeing all these dead people. He's down in hell. He's down in the pit, and he's seeing all of these military armies with him in hell. And shall be comforted over all his multitude, even Pharaoh and all his army, slain by the sword, saith the Lord God. For I have caused my terror in the land of the living, and he, Pharaoh, shall be laid in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that are slain with the sword, even Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. So, without question, Ezekiel is prophesying of the death of Pharaoh. Okay? But that didn't happen historically. So, Pharaoh is supposed to die. But look what else is connected with Pharaoh and his destruction. Look at verse 5. Okay? And I will lay thy flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with thy height. I will also water with thy blood the land wherein thou swimmest, even to the mountains, and the rivers shall be full of thee. And when I shall put thee out, Pharaoh, the Lord speaking to Pharaoh, when I kill you, essentially, I will do, look at this, verse 7. When this happens, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee, and set darkness upon thy land, saith the Lord God. Well, that sounds a lot like the second advent, doesn't it? Look at verse 9. I will also vex the hearts of many people, when I shall bring thy destruction among the nations into the countries which thou hast not known. Yea, I will make many people amazed at thee, and their kings shall be horribly afraid for thee, when I shall, look at this, brandish my sword... God's sword among them, and they shall tremble at every moment, every man for his own life in the day of thy fall. Now, 
Call me crazy, but that sounds a lot like the second advent to me. <laughs> the Lord threatening the death of Pharaoh and his army and laying his, his army and his corpses across the mountains for the birds and the fowls of heaven to eat the corpses. And God is saying, I'm going to brandish my sword before you. You know, that fiery sword of Revelation 19. But then look at verse 11. For thus saith the very next verse, after God says, I'm going to brandish my sword. Look at what he says in verse 11. For thus saith the Lord God. The sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon thee. <laughs> so notice here that God says that his sword is the king of Babylon's sword, the king of the north. Now look at Jeremiah's prophecy of this event. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 46 and see what Jeremiah has to say about this epic battle between the king of the south and the king of the north, between Pharaoh and uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah 46 verse 1. The word of the Lord which came unto Jeremiah against the Gentiles, Oops. against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Order ye the buckler and shield, and draw near to battle. Harness the horses, and get up. Ye horsemen, and stand forth with your helmets, furbish the shears, and put on the brigadines. Wherefore have I seen them dismayed and turned back? And their mighty ones are beaten down and fled apace, and look not back, for fear was round about, saith the Lord. Let not the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They shall stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this that cometh up as a flood, whose waters are moved as the rivers? Verse 8. Egypt riseth up like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. And he saith, I will go up, I will cover the earth, I will destroy the city and the inhabitants thereof. Come up, ye horses, and rage, ye chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans. Okay, so their Ethiopia and Libya are often connected, directly connected with Egypt, which we'll also get into in Daniel 11. And uh, come up, Ethiopians and Libyans that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. For look at verse 10. Now, hold on. Verse In Jeremiah 46, we are talking about the battle of Carchemish between Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. Battle of Carchemish. No doubt, Jeremiah 46, 1 and 2. But look at what it says here in verse 10. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. Well, that sounds a lot like the second advent. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiate and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. So this is similar to the supper. In the Old Testament, a sacrifice was often directly connected with a supper. Okay, So this sacrifice and supper sounds a lot like the supper for the birds in Revelation 19.17, when Jesus Christ destroys the armies of the Antichrist. Okay, verse 11, go up into Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt, for in vain shalt thou use many medicines, for thou shalt not be cured. The nations have heard of thy shame, and thy cry hath filled the land, for the mighty man hath stumbled against the mighty, and they are fallen both together. Okay, so in other words, what I'm getting at here is this epic, <coughs> epic battle of Carchemish between Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of the north, the king of Babylon, and Pharaoh the king of the south, the king of Egypt, this battle was designed by God to be a type 
of the Second Advent Battle of Armageddon. Battle. Now, I'm not just making this up. You saw how the, how the Battle of Carchemish was likened to the Day of the Lord, the Day of Vengeance, when Pharaoh is put out, the sun is made dark, the, the moon does not give her light, the stars don't shine, okay? I'm not just pulling this out of a hat or somewhere else. <laughs> this is what God is indicating is this Battle of Carchemish was designed by him to be a type of the battle... Armageddon to be a type of the battle of Armageddon. Okay, And in that battle of Carchemish, you have a battle between the king of the north and the king of the south. And in the battle of Armageddon, as I'm trying to explain from Daniel 11, verse 40 through 45, it is a battle between the king of the south, the Antichrist, and the king of the north. Can you see this? I didn't even think about that. Nope, wrong way. Here we go. And the king of the north, Jesus. Okay. All right. So, Pharaoh, the king of the south, equals the Antichrist. That works. That's consistent with what I've been saying. And uh, then you have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, the ba of Babylon, the king of the north, because Babylon is the fortress of the king of the north, so Babylon's associated with the north, and the king of the north is Jesus. So you see that it, it sounds weird for Nebuchadnezzar to be associated with Jesus in type, and yet, in Jeremiah 43, verse 10, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Jeremiah 43, verse 10. So Pharaoh was defeated at Carchemish historically, but he wasn't killed, okay? Ezekiel's prophecy said he would be killed, and the corpses of him and of his army would be scattered across the land for the birds of the air to eat. That never happened. So that can only mean one thing if the Bible is true. Now, you know, well, maybe the Bible, you know, if it gets nine out of ten prophecies right, you know, it's like if it gets one or two wrong, I mean, hey, it's got a pretty good track record. Nobody bats a thousand. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that God bats a thousand. <laughs> God always gets it right. But we have a very distinct, obvious problem in Ezekiel 32 that the critics say, well, this proves that the Bible is false. Now, I'm going to stand here and say, I don't believe the Bible is false. I don't think Ezekiel got it wrong. Interestingly enough, for what it's worth, Ezekiel prophesied of this battle of Carchemish after it had already happened. So that's interesting. So if the Bible is true, and Ezekiel did, or Pharaoh did not die at the battle of Carchemish, then therefore that can only mean one thing. The battle that Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 32 is still yet to happen sometime in the future. Ezekiel's prophecy was, here's what I believe, Ezekiel's prophecy was looking forward to a similar but different battle way out in the future. Where Pharaoh, in that battle, represents the Antichrist, and Nebuchadnezzar, 
in that future battle is a representation or a type of Jesus Christ, except in that future battle, the Battle of Armageddon, Pharaoh is killed exactly like Ezekiel prophesies. Now, do you see the relevance of all of that? You have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the north. The battle is a type of the Battle of Armageddon. Nebuchadnezzar in that battle is a type of Jesus Christ. So therefore, Jesus can be the king of the north. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's not really that hard to see the connections. You know, the north being heaven, right? So that's, that fits. But Nebuchadnezzar is a type of Jesus at this battle of Armageddon, which is a type of the, or battle of Carchemish, which is a type of battle of Armageddon. So again, the concept that I'm going to start pursuing in the next few lessons as we close out this series of Daniel chapter 11 is I'm going to pursue and investigate the idea that perhaps Daniel 11 verses 40 through 45 describes the end time war between Jesus and the Antichrist. Jesus being the king of the north, the Antichrist being the king of the south. Now, as I said, there will be some things about this theory that will fit very nicely. But then there are a few details that admittedly are somewhat problematic with my own theory. And I will be transparent as to what those problems are when we get there. But admittedly, the truth of the matter is the interpretation that I'm going to present in the next few lessons is radically different from the other theory. Bear in mind that there are pros and cons to both theories. The Egyptian... If, uh, and, and our options with the, either the Egyptian rebellion theory or this Jesus equals the king of the north theory, okay, either our, our options with this is either the, the Egyptian end time rebellion theory is right or my Jesus equals the king of the north theory is right or both theories are wrong and there's another solution out there somewhere. But the fact of the matter is both theories cannot be right. You can't have it both ways. So remember, though, when we're studying this, the most important thing to consider regarding any Bible interpretation is, does it have other scripture to back it up? Now, there's one final thing that I want to mention uh, for the end of this lesson today, and we'll get into the, the meat of the text uh, next week. But with the, uh, there's one final uh, arrow that I want to shoot into the Egyptian rebellion theory. And the Egyptian rebellion theory, that is, uh, you know, the predominant theory among Bible believers, the, that theory has the second advent in it, okay? I mean, it is included in uh, verse 44 through verse 45 of Daniel chapter 11. But this, the, the theory that teaches that some random king of Egypt is going to rebel against the Antichrist right before the second advent, if you adopt that theory then what you have is the second advent is only alluded to in that theory. That is to say, in Daniel chapter 11, if you go with that theory, then yeah, you do have the second advent in there somewhere, but it's only alluded to where it says, yet he, the Antichrist, shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Like, that's the second advent. So my question is, is that it? <laughs> right? So the most epic battle in all of human history is this battle of Armageddon. And yet the Egyptian rebellion theory only has the battle of Armageddon as a side note eclipsed by this random king of Egypt attacking the Antichrist. 
Why would that battle, that's found nowhere else in Scripture, eclipse this battle? Oh yeah, oh by the way, there is a second advent where the king of the universe attacks the Antichrist, but we we don't need, that's not as important as this battle right here. (laughs) Oh yeah, the battle of Armageddon, yeah, well, the Antichrist will come to his end and none will help him at the second advent, yeah, but this random king of Egypt, he's going to rebel against the Antichrist. Is that it? Does anyone else think that sounds just a little weird? (laughs) Okay. So now, in regards to the timeline, finally I'll say this, the Egyptian rebellion theory extends from the Great Tribulation, if you're going to go with that theory, it extends from the Great Tribulation in verse 36 to uh, the Second Advent, verse 44, verse 45. The theory that I'm going to present actually is going to extend beyond the Second Advent, because as we know, the reason why I drew drew this map out like this is because, as we know from Scripture, there's a lot of history that still has yet to transpire after the second advent this isn't the end of everything there's still a 1000 year millennium and then there's another battle of gog and magog at the end of that and then god destroys the universe and recreates the new heaven and new earth revelation 21 22 so what if daniel 11 verses 40 through 45 covers not just this but all of this too well that'd be interesting is that possible i think it is But we'll get into all the details of that next time. I hope you enjoyed today's lesson. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube link there and uh, share this lesson with your friends and family. And if you think it's total heresy, share the video. (laughs) God bless you. God's grace be with you. Have a good week.